Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. And all of a sudden, we are getting six figures to replace a new roof and decking. Those are the important questions that as a investor, but also the operator that we need to be asking. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Welcome, fellow investors, to Ritter on Real Estate, the show that teaches you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, we've got a couple of special guests. This is the first time we've had two guests on the show, so excited to mix it up a little bit. So we've got special guests today, Colin Schwartz and Chris Pomerlu. They run Park Ave Capital, which focuses on acquiring properties in the Omaha area. They collectively own 600 units. And in addition to that, they both serve as coaches for newer investors. And Colin additionally runs his own property management firm called Bricktown Management and is head of the largest meetup in Nebraska with about a thousand members. That's pretty impressive. Got my own here in Indianapolis. I started recently, but we're about a tenth of where you are. So I'm going to have to pick up some tips after the show. But these guys are really excited to dig in with some syndicators who know about the business, have some different perspectives related to asset management and property management. And with that, I think let's get right into it. And I thought one thing that'd be really interesting to talk with you guys about, because we haven't had anybody on the show local to that market, is just understand how'd you guys pick Omaha? What are you looking for in your type of investments? And why that market? And how do you think that that prepares you for the future here as we continue to look out kind of the post-COVID environment we're in. Yeah, so I'll start off and Chris definitely chime in. So this is Colin. The reason, I mean, I was living in Omaha. I've been living here for seven years, seven, eight years, and it started to see a lot of growth in the area. I noticed that during the last recession, there was really no dip. Things just kind of slowed down, but there's actually no dip in the environment. And then becoming a new investor, I was originally working in IT as a project manager for an insurance company. And to effectively do that with a new family, it made most sense to invest in my backyard. The fundamentals made sense. I know when I would get on Bigger Pockets or listen to other podcasts, they would talk about the 1% rule. And there are numerous properties out here that would exceed that quite often. So I just figured that to be a really good area, stable market. And once again, I have my roots here and was able to build a team to kind of focus around 
around the Omaha market. So it might've been luck that I moved to Omaha, but, but all the fundamentals made sense. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah I was born in Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is a suburb of Omaha, Nebraska. So I'll claim that all day. You keep your mouth shut, Colin. It's a, it's a, it's a small little suburb, but it's in, the, it's in a different state, of course. But it, for all intents and purposes, it might as well just be Omaha. So I've lived here. Outside of the few years I was in the military and college, I've lived here for over 30 years. So I obviously know the market really well. Colin's right. This is being in the Midwest. We're just affected a lot less than the coast. So you kind of say stagnant or you kind of run parallel in the dips opposed to the volatility of the coast. So that made it really easy for us being here, living here, living here my whole life. And like Colin said, having the ability to then also be the boots on ground while we're here, it just made it really easy to invest here. So that's certainly why we started here. But I mean, look, we have now built such a process that you start from the singles and the doubles or whatever, and you start moving into the larger units all here in Omaha. But now we have a process together where we feel comfortable and scaling out around, whether it's Kansas City or Sioux Falls or Des Moines. So we're not just in Omaha now as well. And one thing that I think is important to point out is most people look at the coast, San Francisco, maybe New York or any of those areas with that high appreciation, and they're buying on appreciation. Nebraska and Omaha is not going to appreciate, but there are so many opportunities to force appreciate everywhere that you can actually just hedge that kind of delta in itself just from your underwriting. You have a lot of mom and pop owners that you run into that rents are way under market that you can get those up and you're not going to have that volatility. As I feel on the coasts, it's just based on, okay, there's a new tech hub, this million dollar home is now worth a million and a half dollars. And then you have COVID-19 and nobody really needs to work in the coast and then they can move. As in Nebraska, you're really able to control that, which we found a lot of benefits from. And what type of properties do you guys target? What are you acquiring? I mean, we look for the, the value add, and I understand that's a term that's relatively over, perhaps overused, but certainly often sought after, but there has to be some room for it. We're not really into the purchasing something at the top of its value. You approach it, I don't like the comparison, but it's easy to understand. You approach it like the stock market, right? You wouldn't buy Apple stock when it's worth its largest amount. You purchase it when it has room to grow, and that's what Colin was kind of alluding to there is that we're not going to buy something and four years later hope that it's worth more. We're going to buy something and then force appreciate it by raising the income and lowering the expenses and fixing the place up. And that's the way we're able to really raise the value of these projects we're putting our money into. Yeah. And another key point on that is I think we're always looking in the path of progress. So we were looking at areas that may be considered slightly fringe. However, you can see two, three years down the road that other developers have plans around the area that there's going to be development opportunities. And that way we can get in on kind of the forefront. Now, we're going to be the crazy ones doing the heavy lifting in an area that's a couple blocks south of where people would consider ideal. However, those two years pass and then they become optimal properties. And as Chris said, yep, we're increasing the rents. We're also looking for those utility billbacks as well. So, I mean, that's one of the first things I go through. There's a lot of numbers you can look through when you get a PL or something like that. But what you're looking for, or at least what I look for, is what's the rents? Divide that out by the number of units. Does that seem accurate? And then I'm looking at the utilities and does that seem accurate? What's the owner paying here and where can that be allocated back? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you guys just value investors, making Warren Buffett proud there, right in his backyard. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. I mean, that's really the, I mean, it's the same strategy that, that I follow and believe in, right? It's 
buy it at a reasonable price and you buy something that you know you can add value to. And there's a lot more surety there than, than there is in trying to ride the appreciation roller coaster. So okay. I, I appreciate that strategy. I know you guys have your roles within the company. I wanted to, to hear a little bit from your unique perspectives, asset management and property management. Help our listeners understand as they're looking at evaluating deals, as they're vetting syndicators and they're vetting deals, what are the things from your perspectives that are most important to look at? What questions should they be asking to make sure that they truly understand the deal and to understand if it's a good deal or not? And just expound upon that a little bit. And I'd love to hear your perspective. Chris, I'll let you start it off. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the most important things that a passive investor needs to look at is who they're putting their money in with, right? The numbers on a slideshow are always going to intrigue you. If they didn't, then the person didn't put the slideshow together correctly. So that doesn't really guarantee any type of outcome. What really matters is how comfortable you feel with the operator, the actual sponsor, the actual general partner, the person running the business plan. And so I think that that is by far the most, in my opinion, overlooked concept is that it's easy to look at a slideshow or a projection and say, oh, I like a double digit return. But if you don't understand who's, or you don't feel comfortable with who's running the project, the projections really don't mean anything. I'd say the, by far the most important thing is to get on the phone with the sponsor of the GP. Make sure you know who you're partnering with. If you're going to buy a duplex with one other person, you want to make sure your interests are aligned. Through both Colin and my's history of investing, we've had a number of different partners and it wasn't like we just jumped right away into an investment without actually getting to know who they were. Go ahead, mm -hmm. Colin. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's one of the most important things. The last thing that you said, as well as calling and getting on the phone with a sponsor, but as far as like the investor and the group that's working together, that you guys are aligned, that you really understand what the risk is and also the personality types. I mean, there's a lot from an operator perspective where we are hoping that we are being entrusted to do our jobs and do our professions as we are professionals and for the investor to trust that. But we also do want them on the front end to ask us a lot of questions because we want to make sure that our goals are aligned. I think that that is absolutely imperative because some projects, they may not cash flow for 18 months or two years because they're such a heavy value add. Other projects are going to cash flow right away because that is the type of project it is and that's how we're approaching it. So I think those are really important things. And to echo what Chris said, yeah, talk to the operators, understand who the property manager is and understand who the asset manager is and what their track record is. I think what benefits Colin and I are and kind of sets us apart from a lot of syndicators is that we've actually been a part of or done every step of the entire process. You look at like the electricians union or a group of electricians, a certain hall, you might have one who just starts out, but the person who's kind of overseeing said individual has been in that position, has done exactly what they've done and worked their way up. I mean, we are managing the majority or a large portion of the properties that we own, Collins Group Bricktown Management. So he obviously understands exactly what is to be expected out of another property manager. We've laid the flooring ourselves. We've painted ourselves. We've done all of that. As you continue to grow, that's 600 units in the last three years. And as we continue to grow, we're not going to be able to paint 600 units ourselves, but we know what to expect out of the people who are part of our scale business. So I think that's what is really important is that we're not just somebody who came from some type of investing background where we're reading a spreadsheet and, and hoping that spreadsheet's different next quarter. We've been there. We've done that. We know what to expect. And I think that's important that you look 
at that concept when you're trying to find someone to partner with? Yeah, it's not necessary that you as an individual have to do everything. It is what is necessary is that you and your group or the group of people that you have together has collectively touched every point. You're always going to come across something new where you're going to have to find a new team member, syndication attorney, et cetera. But I know when I started, you know, I was writing my own contracts. I was writing my own direct mail, doing all the negotiation. Now it's it's getting a little bit more in depth like with negotiating certain seller financing, working insurance claims. But really being active in those pieces, and even if you only do it once or partly involved, you're going to be able to add a ton of value to future projects because there's so many things that often get overlooked that can make and break a deal. And we, I think, excel in being able to find deals because we're the ones willing to ask, hey, is there an insurance claim on this? And they may say, ah, no, but I think the roof's fine. It was replaced five years ago. Well, we do our due diligence and we go find that no, it needs a whole new roof. And then all of a sudden we are getting six figures to replace a new roof and decking. And those are the important questions that as a investor, but also the operator that we need to be asking. So, and it comes with experience, but it also comes with those qualified team members that you have around you. And you can't do it all, all the time. Right. So expand on that a little bit for our investors. As you're looking at it, let's say from an asset management perspective, your background, you're looking at a deal. What is it that you're looking at first? How are you evaluating the deal? And what are the levers that you're looking to pull as you're saying, does this deal make sense or not? Colin kind of alluded to it earlier, but you want to make sure that the first off of the rental income is where it should be. It's easy as an owner or what we've seen from these perhaps older owners or at least owners who have become comfortable in their position. It's easy to just be really happy with the 99% occupancy that is $75 less a unit than it should be. And maybe they haven't taken the time to crunch those numbers and find out that if they press the market a little bit, raise it $75 a unit, that maybe they're down to 92% occupancy but they're pulling in $10,000 more a year. And it's easy not to have to do that because some people become comfortable in it. I think that you have to look at the income right away compared to the surrounding locations. I think that the background that we have in property management, as well as a couple third-party property managers that we use, they have that ability to really fine-tune and review the local market and the rental income. And then Colin had said it earlier as well as the expenses. It's amazing to me how many owners are still paying the utilities for their tenants or aren't charging common area maintenance fees or aren't taking an advantage of a possible laundry room or there's a number of items that you can actually take away on the expenses. And by raising the income and lowering the expenses, you change the net operating income, of course, as you know, and that's what we've been really successful at. When you look at things like other income, what are those items? I know you went into a few of them. What are those items that you're, you're seeing consistently, you're able to implement? And how much of an uptick do you see in revenue because of those other income items? I mean, one of the big ones is the utility bill back. We are always doing that utility bill back with gas, water, sewer. Some of the older buildings, the buildings were just single meter. So we were adding that bill back. Another one, which we just started doing, this is probably six to eight months ago, is adding a common area maintenance fee. So what we did is we started looking at what is the cost for snow removal? What is the cost for cleaning? What is the cost for lawn care? Okay, well, we have that. Okay, we're paying these items. In Nebraska, sometimes you get hit really bad with a lot of snow, as we did two years ago, and those things start to add up and they become painful. And we're also going out there and doing a service. We work really hard. Our first objective, so my objective is for my customers at Breakdown Management is to get across the fact that we care. 
we are here for you. We are going to take care of maintenance issues as fast as possible. For our investors is that we're relentless and aggressive. We are going to work our butts off to make sure that our residents, that they know that we care for them. So in doing that, it costs extra money. So we look at that number, we look at that yearly amount, and we tack that on. We add it as a common area maintenance fee. And I think that's oftentimes overlooked, especially for BC class types buildings, where you don't usually see that. You just usually see a flat rate. But I tell you, we have had no qualms with a $15, $12, $20 charge a month that's tacked on. Well, you tack that over 500 units, you multiply that out at a six and a half cap rate, you are adding a ton of value to the property and also increasing its cash flow substantially. Yeah, that's interesting. Is that something that you guys are, are a leader in in the market or are other people doing that? I wouldn't say the first to bring it to Nebraska by any means, but I can tell you that the majority of the property managers we're speaking to are not doing this. And I think Colin alluded to it, but I think it's a sincere statement that I think the tenants get what they pay for. We have not had any issues at all with asking for that small amount. And I think it's because, I'm almost certain it's because, they're legitimately happy with where they live. So sure, they're paying an extra $10 a month, which is what, two trips to Starbucks or who knows, you know, whatever. But it's a clean environment. There's not snow in the way. Things are actually getting done as opposed to them just being billed for it. So as far as us being the first operators to do this, we are certainly teaching other operators of this, but we haven't had an issue with it. And it certainly has been a big turnaround for us as far as our overall return. Yeah, it's typically done in larger complexes, but you figure, you know, if we're servicing, say, just 200 units with this common area maintenance at $20 a month, what's that, $2,000 or $4,000? Well, we hire somebody for three, 400 bucks a week at 10, 12 hours to go around, pick up items, and, you know, just add to it, add that in addition to it, make sure all the trash, anything like that is cleaned up, and, you know, anything that's been left out at the complex and kind of looking unsightly. And that in itself pays for it, not including the value add portion of it. It's, and it's a service on both ends. Yeah. I mean, I love that perspective. You guys are service first and you're creating immense value for the property by making sure they're really focusing on the needs of the the residents. That's a very good approach. So you guys are also real estate coaches, right? You both in your own way. I wanted to dig into that a little more. A lot of our listeners are folks that are either investing actively in deals. And my big push is that we're always continuing to educate ourselves. And there's also quite a few folks that are that are interested in getting into real estate, into multifamily, and are looking at their first deal. So from your coaching perspective, you guys put your coaching hats on. I'd love to, to hear you expand a little bit on what are you coaching students about? What are the things that are the biggest lessons learned or the, or the biggest kind of light bulbs that you're seeing in your students? So kind of just, just expand on that a little bit for us. That's a good question. Before I became a coach and I've just started doing it recently, I mean, I had started the meetup, which serendipitously brought a lot of newer investors to me asking me questions, just being a younger real estate investor in the area. It was kind of already doing it to begin with. And I think most importantly is those individuals that are interested in hiring a coach, et cetera, is to know your goals because that's always my question. And also what work have you put forth? Because Coaching is not, you pay me, I give you results. Coaching is, you pay, and then we work together to formulate results. We are working to expand on your certain knowledge base, and I'm going to help guide that ship. But with that, you're still the captain of the ship. Some of the best things i found is, I mean, I've learned from a lot of the students, and 
they've been able to give back as well, but just getting them over some hurdles, the straight mind deal focus of like, okay, I plugged in these numbers and it comes out to a five and a half cap and cash on cash is 5%. Okay. So that deal doesn't work like that, but how will it work? And what are some areas in which we can make it work? Now, can we do some creative financing? Can we do seller financing? Have we asked that? Have we done delayed payments? Have we done interest only? Have we talked to other banks to look at maybe we're paying five and a half percent interest? Can we pay three and a half percent interest? Just diving into those items, I think are key and just being able to provide those questions that we have from our background and our successes and failures. Yeah. Helping people understand that there's more than one way to to accomplish something huge. I mean, for example, in my own life, I've paid for coaches. And I remember one time I was really struggling with taking the jump and purchasing coaching from a well-known individual. It was relatively expensive. And my answer at first was, I, I can't do it. I just can't. I don't know where the funds are right now. Believe it or not, that coach, it seems self-serving, but it's not. He's phenomenal. He's very well-known help me learn ways I could even find the funds for the coaching. Now, I know that sounds self-serving, but he taught me actually whole different avenues, whole different routes that can be taken for access to funds. So the same funds that I found to actually pay for coaching have helped me pay for other things in my own real estate investing career. So being able to look at things in a different light is part of the biggest thing that I would stress on anybody. I think Colin's right when he says that this isn't a, look, you pay me and then I'll take care of it all for you. I think coaching is the best for anybody who's serious about actually becoming a better investor. But if they're not serious and they're not willing to put in the work, it's a waste of time and money for everybody. It makes no sense for you to pay me if you're going to expect me to serve it to you on a platter. So I think it's a, it's important that you, you understand you're going to have to show up and play ball as well. But I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so beneficial is if you actually find somebody who's really passionate about being better at what they can be, I think that they not only have someone now holding them accountable, they have someone who's already walked that path and they paid money for it. So they know they better show up. And I think that's huge. I know it's certainly helped me. One big thing to point out too, because I also do have a coach and I had actually got off. It was, it's an all day coaching program that we do once a month. And I have one-on-ones with my coach and he had said something and I was just like, oh, this is just like too much work. And I was explaining it to my wife. She's like, well, isn't that why you hired a coach? And I think just like the light bulbs went off in my head. We are all motivated individuals. Anybody listening to this, we're all motivated, but we all have our weak spots. We all have things that we don't want to do that we know we should. And a coach will expose that. A really good coach will say, hey, you are trying to take the easy route on this. This is the work that you need to do. You need to go network. You need to go this. You need to do that. And in that moment, between having a good spouse and a good coach, uh, I was just like, a <laughs> big light bulb went off. And I was like, Oh, I hate to say it, you're right. So, and I think that's important for any students. I mean, and myself as a coach, and I'm also being coached. Just to understand, you may not hear what you want to hear, but you're probably going to hear what you need to hear. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I have coaches as well. And in my experience, yeah, it, it has propelled my success far beyond what I initially paid. And so I believe in it too. I think what you're talking about though is, is accountability, right? You'll mm-hmm. do way more for somebody else than you will for yourself. Is, is what I found, right? So if you know that you have to get on there and you have to tell them that you didn't do what you said you were going to do, you're much more likely to do it than, than if it was just you holding yourself accountable and, and you can quickly just scribble it to next week. So I think that there is huge value there, not in the knowledge, but in the accountability to, to make sure you keep moving forward. So I definitely appreciate that. 
As you're starting the coaching process, I mean, what are the barriers that typically people are bringing up that you're helping them push through as they get started? And I know you mentioned one column, kind of just, you know, the direct line, only one way to do a deal. You help them kind of figure that out. But what are some other things? What are the barriers that you're seeing people that you have to kind of enlighten them to and help them expand their mindset? Another big one is networking, being willing to put yourself out there, just going to networking events, be on podcasts, create podcasts, anything on that level. People have a tendency to most of the time be very inward in their thoughts because of maybe where they were working, coming from a very corporate background. Nobody, We never had a huddle every day in which we talked about our goals and our dreams. We talked about the tasks that needed to be completed. And finding out that there's a group out there of individuals like us that are open and comfortable talking about what our goals are and what we want to become. So it's just kind of breaking through those barriers. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And some people that are passive investors may be saying, well, I'm just a passive investor. I just want to give my money to somebody else. Let them do this. What do I need to be networking and things for? But I mean, it's still important. That's how you find the deals, right? That's how you find the sponsors. It's how you meet people. It's how you create a network to bring the deals to you, even if you don't want to actively purchase. If you still have to find the people that are out doing the deals right. And Chris, to your point earlier, the most important point or piece of the deal is the sponsor, right? If you're not networking, you're not getting out there. How are you meeting these people? How are you understanding who these people really are and that there's somebody with integrity that you're going to want to do a deal with, right? So I think that's a great point about networking. Yeah. I mean, like you said about passive investors, I mean, passive investors, they may not need a coach. They don't may not need to learn how to run an entire investment on a 14 unit or a 44 unit or they don't not care about that, but they need to rub elbows with the right people. They need to be in front of the right people. They need to actually meet them and get to know them. Like you said, network with them and then feel comfortable with the money they're putting towards them. So I agree. Past investors don't necessarily need coaches. Certainly wouldn't hurt in certain areas of their lives, but they may not need a real estate coach, but they certainly need to get out there and network. No question. And typically, if passive investors are reaching out to you, they've already achieved some success in other areas and they're genuinely interested. You rarely have somebody reach out to you that's interested, that has capital, that has no clue on any type of business business aspects and hasn't achieved some type of success. The stock market is the easy bout, the bank account, the CD fund, like just throw money in there and don't teach me anything. When you're going into this, typically people are asking questions because they've had some type of background. So typically I find those people gravitate towards just learning more and getting educated. They don't need to know all the ins and outs. They don't need to know how a property management company is structured. They don't need to know any of that, but they want to know the fundamentals. Yeah. And I think understanding, just from an education standpoint, though, I think understanding those questions that have to be asked, right? So they may not need to know how the property management company works, but they need to know what a good property management company does and what a poor property management company does and, and what metrics a good property management company is looking at right? And, and judging their performance off of. I mean, I think those things are critical and they all go back to the education. So for you guys, now you've had tremendous success. You've acquired 600 units. What's next for you guys? Where does the business go from here? And how do you continue to expand? One brick at a time, right, Colin? One brick at a time. 601 <laughs> units is next. Uh, and then yeah. 602. And then... <laughs> I feel like we just started. I'm going to let Chris answer this, but honestly, I feel like we have honestly just started. We have started to put together all the systems. We now have a very good understanding, but we are still learning things, a hundred things a day. But I feel like we've just started. Yeah. I mean, I think we're 
certainly good at what we do, but as far as getting just started, I mean, what our goals are, we're not even close. I mean, we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to help not only the company that we're building, but the people that are investing with us. And we were talking about it the other day. I wouldn't mind 10,000 units in 10 years. I think that's a good goal. Colin and his Bricktown group started giving back, and this has been on our radar as well as perhaps starting a nonprofit. But I mean, helping out the community, taking in money from not only like the real estate meetup like Colin's done, but helping out the tenants during this time, giving them gift certificates or whatever that could help them. It helps both of us, right? Because they're happy with where they live, then they pay their rent, but they're also helped during this time. And I think one of the things that Colin and I never lost sight of is that while we continue to grow so quickly, it's also important to help out the investors, the tenants, those less fortunate. So I think as we continue to, to grow financially, that's also something in the back of our mind is to give as well. That's great. So as we wrap up the show, there's a segment I like to do at the end called the keys to success. And I've got a couple of questions I want to fire at you guys. We haven't done it with two on before, but we'll just kind of go back to back. And what are you guys most proud of? I'll let Colin answer first always. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. This is rare, but no, honestly, I'm really proud of the team and the individuals that I brought together. And I know this is also self-serving. I'm very proud of the enjoyment and fulfillment I'm finding in doing what I'm doing because I have met some of the best people in my life in the past couple of years. It is just incredible. And working with our residents and we've gotten notes that We've done the best job and we gave a lady a free month's rent. We knew she was struggling. This was a year ago for a Christmas present. She said, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever done for me ever. I mean, just seeing those things and be, having the ability to do that, it's awesome. You know, I piggyback off, but I'll have my own organic answer as well. But the relationships, no question. I'm extremely happy with the relationships. I, I'm glad that I met someone like Colin and our interests aligned and whatnot. And he's building a good team there. And we continue to gather more and more partners. So that's certainly something I'm proud of. On a selfish or personal level, I'd say that because of how driven we've been and successful we've been, I've been able to spend more time with my family. So I guess I would honestly say that I'm, I'm proud of myself and my team for allowing that. And I think that's the benefit of passive investing. So that's something I'm truly, truly proud of. And what's each of your number one goal this year? All right, Chris, you go first this time. I'd say just, this is not a quantitative, more of a qualitative look into it, but I'd say, um, Having the same group of investors times three or four by December 31st that has seen how we've been able to handle this COVID issue and how everything's gone for us and our relationship with our tenants. I think our goal by ending the year would be that, this sounds weird to say, but with COVID, it, everything's different, but it's quadrupling our investor base by the end of the year because I feel that a number of syndicators slash people taking in money slash partners real estate investors are going to perhaps not make it through the end of the year. I'm not wishful. There's plenty to go around. So I'm not wishing that happens to anybody. But I think my main goal is just to make sure everyone stays happy, tenants and investors alike through the end of the year. So I've got like five different goals. COVID's made a big difference. One of them was to like travel for two months with my family. So we'll see if that happens. But one of them is a thousand units and that also builds off of getting investors, et cetera. But one of the biggest things is just being more present. I know that's a more personal item, but with all the work that we've put through and having a, a family of three, all children under five, like being able to have that ability to be present, that's a good goal. That is a good goal. For, for me, me as well. It, for me as well. It, 
it's very hard because we are so business driven and we just want to do more. So that's, that's my business coach telling me to, to work on that. <laughs> and that's my wife telling me to do that. <laughs> just as important as the business coach. You're dang right. <laughs> what book should everybody be reading? Hmm. Just one, huh? Well, I've given this answer a number of times when somebody asked me a book. I like The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. You don't necessarily have to follow his exact morning routine. I somewhat do, basically. But I think it's just important to have a morning routine. And that really helped set up that mindset. So I think you can utilize that book, whether you're a real estate syndicator, investor, a dentist, an electrician, or whatever. I think The Miracle Morning is huge. The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. That is a book I've listened to a dozen times, given away multiple times, Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Everybody should read that. It focuses on incremental gains and how every day, every minute can make an impact on your life, either positively or negatively. Oh, sound great. I ha haven't read The Compound Effect, but I'm a big Please Miracle Morning Please listen to fan. it tonight. Please <laughs> listen to it tonight. The entire seriously. thing tonight. Please. I'll start it when I get up early on my miracle morning routine. Nice. Well played. That is, that is something that I do. And I've fallen off the wagon, gotten back on and things. But we had our second child two months ago. So I've certainly fallen off the early morning routine wagon. I'm slowly getting back into it, Bets. Yep. Yeah. I experienced the same thing with my third kid. And once you start getting some steady sleep, five, six hours at one time again, you can, you you can, can start kind of edging back in. Yeah, exactly. But those are great answers, guys. I, I think those are both fantastic books and the one I'll have to check out. So the last question is, if you could only ask one question to a deal sponsor, thinking about it as a passive investor, what's that one question that somebody should ask you? I think I would ask them to give an example of a time where an investment did not go the way they projected or the way that they wanted to. And I put an emphasis on a negative effect. Not like we projected 11%. We only got 10%. It was terrible. But I mean, like, it was a negative effect. How did you handle it? And how did you make it right by your investors? I think that is a great question to ask. Because you can see one, if you have just somebody who doesn't tell the truth, that they say, well, that's never happened to us. We're perfect. We do everything absolutely amazing. And everything we've ever projected has been above and beyond. If they say that, I would run. And then two, you can see what kind of person you're dealing with. If it's somebody who, who had to give some of their own, some of the benefits they would have received so that the investors succeeded, you're starting to look at somebody who knows that it's, you're after the overall gain. And from a selfish perspective, the happier their investors are, the longer they stay around, right? And the more they, they want to help out with you and then the more they trust you. So that's the number one question I would ask. What would you do if COVID-19 happens again on a different scale? So we've already been set up kind of for this perfect scenario or what was your preparation for that? What did you do during that? I don't know if that's the best question, but it's also like a very relevant question. Like, did you just stand still or did you actually put an action plan together? And if so, what was that action plan and how did you implement it? Because, I mean, there could be floods, there could be tornadoes. I mean, we're not just talking about just like evictions or anything like that. But it's somebody that's prepared and somebody that went through this as an operator, we all quickly put together an action plan. We got it out to our team and we dispersed it to our team and to our residents as needed. So it's a question for now that I would ask. It's likely relevant going forward, right? We don't know that this never happens again. In all likelihood, there's going to be some form of this again in, in some way. So I think it's very relevant, right? It, what's your preparedness and what were the lessons learned? I think are big things, right? So how are you going to do it better next time? Because that's what's important, right? 
do it better every time. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Chris. This has been an, an awesome conversation. Love to hear about talking about the importance of the sponsor and, and how the deal due diligence really starts there. Loved hearing about your perspectives around asset management and property management and learning a little bit about the Omaha market. Wish you guys a ton of success in the future and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. That was a fantastic interview with Chris and Colin. The guys wanted to let me know that they're offering a free report to our listeners. Just go to partneringchecklist.com and get your report on what questions to ask a sponsor or partner before investing with them. Again, just go to partneringchecklist.com to check that out. If you'd like to contact Chris and Colin, you can reach them at parkavinvesting.com. And you can also find them on LinkedIn at Chris Pomerlu and at Colin Schwartz. And I'll include all of that in the show notes so you can reference it later. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.